Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Little known fact about my guests today, they were both involved this year in the 24-hour plays, although for very different reasons. The 24-hour plays is a one-night-only event where the greatest actors of our generation come together with the greatest writers of our generation. They are paired. The writer writes a play for the actors that they've been assigned. And within 24 hours, it goes from meeting to writing to learning the script to performing in front of an audience, and it is truly one of the most exhilarating evenings for the artists involved and the audience who gets to be there. And this year, the 24-Hour Plays, which uh, is helmed, the director of the 24-Hour Plays by Mark Armstrong, and Warren Light, who has been writing for the 24-Hour Plays since at least 2000 or 2001, if I recall, Uh, Warren was honored this year. And so they are here to talk about what makes the 24-hour play so special, why Warren Light, who is produced all over the world as a playwright and runs some of the best television shows you've ever seen, why does he come back year after year to write under this kind of pressure? And it is my honor to have Warren Light and Mark Armstrong on the podcast. Enjoy. okay. Hey everyone, my guests today are Mark Armstrong and Warren Light. Mark Armstrong is the artistic director of the 24-Hour Plays. His directing highlights with the 24-Hour Plays include annual productions of the 24-Hour Plays on Broadway, the 24-Hour Musicals, the 24-Hour Plays Nationals, the 24-Hour Plays Viral Viral Monologues, and partner productions across the United States. He also directed Eric Bogosian's Drinking in America, and Mark is also an assistant professor at the New School for Drama in New York City. Warren Light, one of my oldest friends on the planet, is the Pulitzer Prize finalist and Tony-winning author of the play Sideman, as well as No Foreigners, Fame Takes a Holiday, Glimmer, Glimmer and Shine, The Loop, and many others. Warren was showrunner and executive producer on Law and Order Special Victims Unit for almost a decade. 
not consecutively, but almost a decade, uh, was also a showrunner and executive producer of HBO's In Treatment, the FX drama Lights Out, and Law and Order Criminal Intent. Uh, speaking of the 24-hour plays this year, just a few days ago in October of 2023, for listeners of the future, Warren was honored at the 24-hour place. He was the honoree, and that was a fundraiser, I believe, for the 24-hour place educational fund. It is thrilling to welcome Warren Light and Mark Armstrong to the podcast because listeners around the world are about to learn about a really incredible event that, as I just said, happens all over the country and probably all over the world at this point. But I would love for one of you to just tell people, since I've used the phrase 24-hour plays about 24 times now, what is that? What does that mean? Why are we excited about this? I should figure out a way to rewrite that part of my bio so it doesn't say the organization title over and over and over again. Why? It's great because... branding and messaging. I feel like if anyone comes away with anything today, it's the 24-hour plays. It's all good. Yeah, the 24-hour plays are a nonprofit organization um, that we produce plays that are written, rehearsed, and performed in 24 hours. Plays and musicals, as well as export that theater-making methodology and the specialness of that event to schools and theaters and colleges all over. So Warren, uh, you know, we just read like, like a thumbnail sketch of your bio. I have known you since the very beginning of your career. Uh, we came up together in a way. And so, first of all, it's just incredible to get to say all those things out loud and to have watched you become Warren Light. And so the connective tissue here is that you as a writer have been a part of the 24-hour plays. So what made you originally do it? Uh, what's the process like? What keeps you coming back? Tell us about it from the creative experience as a writer like you. Well, thanks. Hi, Alana. Really, Hi, really Warren. Nice to, nice to see and hear you. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it began, uh, 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 and this is part of the story. I, I got a call in it's probably summer of 2001, uh, and I uh, did I want to write a play overnight to benefit charity? And the, the conceit at the time, which I liked very much, was we're all busy people. We all can't predict. I can't say I'm going to be free every Tuesday at 4 for the next six months. I can't say I'm going to be free next Tuesday. But if you tell me two months in advance, save 24 hours, I can usually carve that out. And, and the, the notion is you come in at eight at night, 30 actors, none of whom would ever do your plays in the real world because they're all very busy, very successful, and it's very hard to get anyone to commit to a play. But for 24 hours, they'll commit. 30 actors are there. They each get up. They're all nervous. They tell a little story about who they are. They say, I've always wanted to speak French on stage. I've always wanted to dance on stage. They bring a prop, they bring a costume. Um, uh, and they talk about, and here's something I've never done. And the 30 of them do that. In 2001, their Polaroids were taken. Uh, they, the, the actors go away, unbeknownst to them, the Polaroids are thrown on a table at that time. And you draft the actors you're gonna write for as if you're drafting fantasy football players or something, which I've never done. And, uh, you know, so I, I got stuck that night with Mary Louise Parker and Natasha Leone, who'd never been on stage in her life, Robert Sean Leonard, uh, um, uh, uh, Rose, Rosie Perez. It was like, you know, not bad. But, but the funny thing was a lot of the writers were just drafting one or two people. So there were a bunch of really good actors left on the table. So I said, I'll just take them all. 
So I wrote because I felt bad for them. So I ended up writing a jury duty piece. But well, that night actually, what made that night indelible in my mind was it was I think nine or ten days after 9/11 when we all gathered, and it was downtown in uh, Nettle Lane Theater, still reeking of the smoke, uh, and people were shell shocked. I was shell shocked. I you know the tanks were still on 14th Street. It was a, and and somehow we, none of us had it was been such a strange out of body time and everybody's kind of stunned and you go off and write something and the next night monday night 300 people showed up to watch it i was like what's going on so and it was and i wrote a piece in general the, the theory is these pieces are written and performed once never to be performed again the piece i wrote was a jury duty scene because i had all these actors who couldn't possibly be in a room together unless it was jury duty like a voir dire and it was about uh and it all took place and they were kind of Small talk, I, I didn't want to be here. I should have been in my office. My office has a view of the 80th floor, all this stuff. And at the end of the piece, the uh, the, the the voir dire guy says, oh, everybody check your your, your jury duty notice. Uh, you're, this is room six. This is, uh, your, uh, make sure this is where you're supposed to be. It's September 10th, 2001. The audience gasps. Something happened because everybody knew that um, uh, no one's life would be the same. Uh, uh, and had they not been in jury duty, uh, the, the, that by being in jury duty, the course of their lives were changed. Played, and it's gotten done, it's been published, it was, but it was, it was a, 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 the moment of creating these pieces so quickly after, after that horrific day uh, and the sense of community and coming together and people writing, you, you know, you should usually, they say, write from the scar, not the wound. But it was it was all fresh. Uh, some of the pieces avoided it completely and were just kind of, or thought they were avoiding it completely. But subconsciously, it was all the way through it anyway. Uh, it was uh, anyway. Something happened that night for me with the twenty four hour project where I, I felt it was like in, in lieu of going to a church or a synagogue, I, I, I found my place in theater with other people and we helped each other get through that. So that's that stayed with me. Plus, it, it does it raise money. Uh, for for charity at that time it was raising money for uh, other charities and then it, it, they I think they realized the organization was doing enough good work that they didn't need to to find other uh, other uh, places to raise money for but the, the the prospect of getting there at eight at night and then the next night at eight no matter what happened that play is going on your actors are off book in costume sort of uh, uh, in front of uh, you know on Monday night it was in front of fifteen hundred people. Live on stage, is is um, it's kind of it's just it's so there's so much adrenaline and there's and there's no chance to second guess yourself or to um, you just have to go and, and rely on your instincts and your first choices. That's what the actors do. That's what the directors do, and you create really interesting pieces. And it reminds you of why you started to write or act or direct in the first place because you you didn't get into it to get notes about the fifth draft of your beat sheet and how the algorithm of Hulu has changed and now they want, that's not why you became a writer or an actor. It's because you wanted to create something with people uh, and also the joy of writing for specific actors and actors of that caliber, instead of writing it, hoping to attract somebody and your agent calling it. it it's just, um, it's, I, I find it, I, was, I said on Monday night, it's like my jazz, especially when I was show running and you're, on a police procedural and it's 22 episodes a year. I, I loved having one night a week where I could just go and wing it. 
you know, and, and not worry about um, lawsuits. And do you really stay up all night? Yeah, I I, I like doing that. Um, I'm a, I tend to procrastinate. So I don't start the, I, by, by 11 or 11.30, you have the five Polaroids of the people who'll be in your show. And you go, in those days, you would just go to, a, there were like rooms or I, one night I was just at a desk. I just stare at the photos for a while and see, could this be this person's mother? Could this be this mm -hmm. person's, like just let the let the photos and what you know about. And sometimes there's actors you've never seen in your life and you're Googling them and like, right. oh my God, they've never been on a stage. Oh no. Right. What, you know, but you, you, you just try to imagine, it, it's a great way to write because you're writing specifically for people and you have to find a story that makes sense for them. But uh, a lot of times I fuck around, I Google, I, like I may not actually start until two in the morning or three in the morning, don't tell Mark. And then, and then you, you know, you, you belch out uh, 10 or 12 pages. They're knocking on your door every couple of, how's it going? And you go, oh, it's going great. <laughs> and then uh, at around six, it's like, we're pretty much done. And I, you know, I, I, I would try to proof it and see if there was any, but something happens because you're, you can't get you're, you're it really is your subconscious running it. And if you have the time, then you can go back and see what your subconscious did and let the left hemisphere do some work. Uh, and you hand it in, I would come, I started to, I think a lot of writers would just go home and sleep. Sometimes I would come back early in the morning to hear it read out once or twice, answer any questions, try to, to fix it. Maybe I'd come back at tech. The tech is 10 minutes, by the way. <laughs> that is my kind of tech. <laughs> but you're on the, they're on the stage for 10 minutes trying to figure out lights and, you know, uh, but it, it comes together and it's a, it's a beautiful evening of community and celebration. And, and you get to see people literally, I mean, when would I get Mary Louise, Rosie Perez, Natasha Leon, and Robert Shaw Leonard, you know, in the same, any, it, it, I'll tell you this, it's never happened again. <laughs> not, not that particular ensemble, but Mark, you know, it is, Having, having, I haven't been uh, a part of the 24-hour plays, but I've been a part of things in my life that are terrifying. And I would say for the actors, um, the vulnerability of A, I don't care how good you are at learning lines, that's a really short amount of time. Obviously, it's a very loving, understanding audience. It's like they know the concept. They understand if someone goes up or fumfers, as my mother calls it. Um, they want to they what? want to do that. They want yeah, to see no, that's the fun, right? The humanity of it. Why do you think so many, you know, Warren mentioned Natasha, who had not at that point, you know, been a theater person. Y your list of, of stars, you can name, you know, as many as you want, um, is a real mix of people who have done a tremendous amount of theater and not. Why do you think really famous people who are very... Um, protective or have a lot of people around them telling them no don't do anything that we're not sure of why do you think there's so much goodwill and and thrill around being a part of the 24-hour plays I think that over the years people have heard from their friends I did this thing and it was so much fun yeah. no one ever possibly believes they say why would people do this and it's hard for people to believe that they do it because they wanted to and they love it um, but it's been for 20 years all their peers have told them I did this thing and it was incredible 
to feel the energy of the kind of the audience leaned in that way. And a couple of things didn't go to plan. I like to say it's like we like to have a little bit of blood on the floor, um, have some mix of some new people, um, but also people see what they can do together. Um, mm -hmm. And I think sometimes people who haven't been to the show think, oh, I bet this is fun because it's a big joke and everyone is screwing up their lines. And really what's the most fun about it is to see people pull it off. You right. know, it's to see people pull off a comedy or pull off a drama and, you know, with a like a little bit of blood on the floor, but mostly they made it across the tightrope not only in terms of finishing the play, but in terms of reaching the audience with a story that had been developed in Warren's first case, um, um, 13 days after September 11th. The first time that um, I produced um, the 24 hour plays on Broadway by myself in this role, because I'm a successor, was right. eight days, six days after the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. So we were all in the room together reeling from what had happened. And I told this story on Monday that everybody goes around the circle and they did their prop and their costume. And there was only one artist from the 2001 show who was also in the 2016 show. And when it got to Warren, he said, I was with these guys after September 11th and we're in the right place. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another reason why people come back is that no matter what is going on, it's a supportive and loving community that comes together around what made us all want to be part of storytelling in the first place and what made us want to be with other people in that way. And yeah, and I think in particular, to answer your question about celebrities, sometimes they get asked, do you want to do a play by someone who thinks that they'll sell tickets? And Chris Rock had never been in a play before at all. Um, and he figured if he could get through one night with us. Um, but the trick was, if Chris is going to go out there and take a risk like that, he wants his scene partner to be Ben Shankman. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you want like absolutely just like a stone cold stage pro to add to sort of scaffold that person yeah. and after that my wife worked with Chris on um, the motherfucker with the hat and his approach to respecting the craft of the stage actors around him was the same as it had been you know right. feeling surrounded and protected and supported in doing something that's very vulnerable and new yeah so it was so informed by that experience. You know, obviously, if you live in New York, it, first of all, it's a hard ticket to get because for all the, you know, because Chris Rock is in a play for one night and Warren Light is writing a play for one night. Um, <laughs> I want to see Warren Light and Chris Rock in a play together. That is what I want to see. I know how much you both have going on. I know this is on the heels of the exhaustion of just having done the 24-hour plays, but I would be... Uh, really remorseful, Warren, if we didn't just have a moment. A, I just want to thank you, certainly during the WGA strike um, uh, and continuously now as SAG-AFTRA are still striking. You have been, uh, for us East Coast Union members, such an incredible leader and voice and communicator and um, rallier of, of union strong. And I guess I just wanted to ask you, A, 
was it an incredible feeling when the WGA was able to come up with a new contract for their future? Um, and is there anything that you can share or say about your experience of suddenly being on the front lines of something so other than what you are meant to be, which is an artist, although you've taken on the role of showrunner, executive producer, you've, you've been wearing a lot of hats in this career from the time you first started. And I can imagine why the 24-hour plays is so refreshing when you don't have to be running 22 departments, but just the purity of writing. But could you just talk a little bit while we're still in the middle of this strike for SAG-AFTRA, any thoughts that you can share or or what comes to mind? I was Because it's still going on and there's still, uh, and it's important to keep showing up. The actors were instrumental in the early days of our strike. And, and what I found in the early days of the strike I remember the first strike was 1988 and the blacklisted writers were there, the ones who um, suffered in the 50s and they led the charge. And then uh, there've been four strikes that were four and a half. But I, I remember 2008, the old guard, and I looked around this time and the old guard is still there, but they're, they're, they've they're had a hip replacement. They don't know social media. You know, they're, yeah. they're still walking and, and, they, and, and I, God forbid there's another strike in 15 years. If I'm still around, I'll still walk. But I looked around and I was like, oh, Fudge, uh, it's it's my turn, and I, I because I've been show running in New York, we for so long. Uh, I have a, a lot of people on a lot of crews in New York, and a lot of actor friends on a lot of shows in New York, and a lot. So I I I, I, I was hearing rumors that uh, people wanted to be supportive. That the tradition of of the other strikes is we would march around the CBS building, we would march around. Uh, the headquarters of ABC, Sixth Avenue. You march around the corporate headquarters for three hours, and then writers would all go drinking. And it, I, I call that your father's pickets. And and um and this time around, we we began to notice that uh, you know shows were still shooting, and if we got to the shows ahead of the Teamsters, the Teamsters wouldn't cross. That had been whispered to us, uh, and and the the union leadership and the executive they didn't have any idea. They, this was this bubbled up from from the rank and file. We started to, you know, we, there were certain shows shooting in our neighborhood. I'd see the orange signs up. I would take a picture of the orange signs. We all got on Signal, which is like what the insurrectionists used on January 6th. And I said, it looks like billions, or it looks like this show is shooting tomorrow at 11 on 26th Street. Any chance we could get a little group of people there. We, we had to make our own signs. The guild wasn't, the guild was still, do, we were doing those rallies. There was one day, very early on, there was a rally outside of Amazon and Lin-Manuel Miranda was there and there were 400 people marching around the block. And I was trying to shut down a TV show seven blocks away with nine bodies. And I went up to the rally and I said, I need 25 people now. And there were about four or five people who knew me and said, it's Warren, go ahead, everybody go. And we shut that show down. And, we, and I realized I had all this experience show running which meant I knew how to show stop. I could read call sheets. I knew locations. So we'd find out they were shooting at a cemetery up on a, uh, in Washington Heights. And I was like, I've shot there. And I'd go in, into my you know, vaults and there's the, there's the call sheet for the cemetery. And I go, there's four entrances to the cemetery. If we can get three people at all four entrances by five in the morning, the teamsters won't cross. They're done wow. for the day. Wow. And, 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 and then, and you don't want to put it out on Twitter until you've got the line set up, because you need the element of surprise. Otherwise, they'll move the shoot. And they were right, right. Out stuff. Um, but once the line was up and being observed, then you wanted to flood the zone with more people. 
So the producers would realize we weren't going away. And there was sometimes they would try to wait it out. Sometimes I'd, I'd play, okay, 9 a.m. shift go. And there was no 9 a.m. shift really, but it, the producers were reading the stuff. So it, 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 it was, and I kind of fell into it. And, and uh, David Simon called me, I thought I was like a taxi dispatcher at a certain point. And David Simon said air traffic controller, but something clicked where we, there was so much anger on the part of all the unions toward what's happened in the last 10 years, toward this sort of yeah. media consolidation and the, the, the drop in residuals is so dramatic. You go from a $48 check for a rerun in Minnesota on one night on Channel 9 to a two-cent check for three years of unlimited use on streaming. Now, people notice it. And so mm -hmm. the actors were, 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 were saying, I don't want to lose a day's work, but I, I, my call time is 7.30, if that's of any use to anybody. And I was getting texts, and and uh, and I think we caught them by surprise. I don't think they... We caught our own guild by surprise, so we certainly caught the studios by surprise. So we, wow. yeah, we shut down shows a lot earlier, and nobody knew them. And and also that's when SAG. That's why I marched today with SAG because SAG actors started showing up, and SAG early on threw in on this, and they would get ten people there, fifteen. They would put the call out, and those guys were showing up uh, be before our writers were even figuring out what was going on. And, and holding these lines. And if you held the lines, the shows, and we would try to figure out at the start, can we let the, if, if there was a, a, a location scene to begin the day, and then they were moving to stage. I know a company move is a very fragile thing. So mm -hmm. you know, if, if you could um, let them shoot the first scene, then everybody's on the books getting paid. And then we would block the move to the stage. And, and, and so we, we were working with people a lot and it, it felt uh, I mean, it, it, in a weird way, I thought maybe this is my third act. I, you know, it was. I, I felt very. And then uh, eventually, I think I, uh, I I went after some people who uh, weren't too happy about it, and 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 uh, I became the. Uh, somebody said you're the Joan of Arc of the Guild now, which and I was like, well, it didn't work out too well for her, but it, it was. Uh, but it worked out really well for Norma Ray. Yeah. So I mean, but I, but you it, could it, be the Norma Ray of the Guild. I'll take that. But it was. But it yeah. was really. Um, and, and and gradually, I just realized, uh, like I could use Twitter because you know if WGA on Twitter says everybody go here, nobody knows who's telling. But if if I'm telling people to go and saying please boost and please amplify, it it, it was stickier as they say in social media. Mm -hmm. So it, it worked. It it helped launch it. And then the actors, the DGA probably shouldn't have settled when they did. Had they just gone out or held off. I think this whole thing could have ended in August if the DGA hadn't done what they always do. But when SAG went out, it should have been over. The studio should have realized, okay, it's the writers and the actors. We, How long are we going to go without making stuff? And instead, I think they were in denial. And oddly enough, um, usually the denial, there's anger, there's a, there's bargaining. There's They got to bargaining as the last stage with us. Yeah. They went Five stages of grief, grief, and then they finally bargained. And it was three days, three days to settle it in September. That could have happened July 15th, yeah. two days after SAG went out. So now they, they're playing the same games with SAG. Eventually they have to settle. They can talk about, oh, this is good for our cash flow. We're not, we're not, you know, because we're not making things. But, you know, if, if you're an auto company and you stop making cars, in the short term, you're saving money. In the long term, right. you have nothing to sell. You have yeah. no cars. Exactly. Sort of as corny as it sounds, sort of go back to the um, sort of the mission and the um, like 
origin story of the 24-hour plays, which is really about the purity of making the thing with a group of people in this very immediate way that then is immediately impactful for the people who get to see it. Just hearing about all of the, like just taking in history and how the 24-hour plays both celebrated or mourned or just created a, a communal experience around a fire on any given night, which is how, you know, theater began to just get to be together. Um, the strike lines have sort of reminded me of that. There's something so um, democratic, everybody, no matter where you are in your career are in it together. Um, and I feel like that's what the 24 hour plays are. You have the newbie who's just come to New York, who somehow got lucky and ended up in a 24 hour play. That was me. Know, that was Mark Armstrong written by yeah, Kenny that Lonergan. Or years, just... that, that, that was me 20 years ago. Yeah. And, um, and here you are running the thing. Me, it was a community that took me in. Yeah. It was a community that I wanted to be part of. Um, and I was at the Atlantic Theater directing this play by Stephen Adligirgis. And it was at the height of the Iraq War. Um, mm -hmm. We had started the air campaign in 2003. And the actor Mums came out at the end of the play and said, right now, we're dropping mad bombs over Baghdad and everybody in the theater realized, oh, that's true. That's, right. that, that's, a, that's a true thing. Right. Um, and I had never felt anything like that before in a theater. Right. And I think when you heard Warren talk, first of all, I think deploying everybody in the way that he did during the strike shows why he's a master of the 24 hour plays, you know, <laughs> is, you know, that ability to sort of jump in and work with what you have and, do things on the fly, but also why it was the right moment for us to to celebrate Warren's career, both as an artist and also as an advocate. Because yeah. as I was honored to remind people last night, on Law & Order, he was one of the first showrunners to staff his writer's room with playwrights, and I think paved the way for American playwrights to work in and subsequently yeah. transform American television as a medium. And he scoured off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway looking for New York actors. And so many people earned their first screen credit as a result of those efforts. And not everyone thinks about the world like that. So when we think about people that are going to be out of work, so many of these people owed so much of their career to Warren in the first place. So yeah, um, that... that all of those things felt connected for me and it was just a and it was just a real joy and an honor well what a joy and honor to have you warren light and you mark armstrong on the podcast today and i'm so thrilled that i just get to share this concept of the 24-hour plays with people who don't know about it it sounds like if you just google 24-hour plays you will figure out how to get involved with the organization wherever you live um yes, anyone can do this um yeah. yes we have productions everywhere in this year i've been to little rock with our friend ashley atkinson i've been to sacramento um i've been to los angeles we did three productions before covid in my home state of minnesota so what well, I that's like the accent that's where you're from <laughs> i know you're like is this guy <laughs> Canadian? that's the accent i i, I can't little I known can't... fact all right yeah, before um, we finish mark and warren i i end every episode mark knows this because he listens to the podcast religiously apparently and i'm so grateful um mark is there a little known fact about you that you can share before we say goodbye and warren that gives you a minute to think of one for yourself 
I'm going to segue from the accent because it <laughs> once would have been a little known fact about me that I'm from Duluth, Minnesota. When I came to New York, I tended to um, try to blend in with everybody else, try to, you know, figure out the East Coast secret handshake. And after a while, I realized, well, if you sort of push down everything about you that's unique, you can't complain that no one thinks you're special. So mm. I talk more about growing up in Duluth and what it was like to go through this intense four-season weather, a city that was built into the side of a hill, literally right on the bank of the largest freshwater lake in the entire world. So yeah, that would have been a little known fact about me, but now it's a sort of proudly held fact about me. I love it. I love it. Warren Light, I know you are not from Duluth. I know that for sure. Um, tell us something about you that might be surprising. Well, I'm very local. Uh, you know, I, I don't think there's much surprising about me because uh, I, I, you know, I taught English in China, but I wrote a play about teaching English in China. Uh, I worked at a Jack in the Box uh, in college, midnight to 6 a.m., but I wrote a one act about working at Jack in the Box, midnight to 6 a.m. on El Camino Real. So I've, I've tended to, to scavenge. So there's there's very, I, I don't think there's, I was in the uh, marching band at Stanford and I couldn't read music, um, but- I didn't know that. So I, I don't played, think anyone knew that. I, I played by ear until they wrote me a solo that they wanted me to play. And I said, I, I'm happy to play it. And could somebody just play it once first? And they were very upset. What what instrument? Trumpet, not well, but I could, I, I had, um I had, I, Look, it's a marching band. It's not, you know, it's not Carnegie Hall, <laughs> you know, um, and, and it was, and I, I could play uh, high notes, which is not everyone, it, it, it doesn't, it's just, you either can't, it, you, I could play high notes, that's helpful in a marching band, and, um, but I, I, I could not read one note that I was playing for the entire football season, so, uh, um, and then when they found that out, that, uh, they, they were not happy. It's you know it's like if you if you're illiterate you can fake it and but when people find out they they think that you're you're you've been getting away with something I don't know it was, but it, anyway I played uh, I played lead trumpet among the lead trumpet players for the Stanford marching band where I was completely I, I you could not think of a school I was less suited for than me at sixteen at Stanford University on a, yeah yeah it's I mean your whole life. Your whole life has many moments like that where you got yourself to really incredible places on your own. And that has continued to be true. Uh, and now you're on the Little Known Facts podcast. I don't know how you did it. I, I don't know how this you got it. here. I have peaked. You have uh, peaked. Um, well, Mark and Warren, I am so grateful to have you. I assume is it 24hourplays.com? Is that where we get all the info? Yeah, or is there it's different? 24 hourplays. 24hourplays.org. Oh, org. Sorry. And, yeah. And learn about attending our shows, but also licensing and producing their own shows. One of the things that I've been trying to do with um, my tenure here is what I call the 50 state strategy. So we have a good anchor partner in each of the 50 states. Um, so that's what I'm on the hunt for. So people can learn about our shows, but also learn how they can partner with us to bring the 24 hour plays to their own community.
Well, that's incredible. I know you guys raised a lot of money with Warren uh, being honored the other night that can really go into communities that would not have something like this if you guys didn't show up and bring it to them. So thank you for the 24-hour place. Thank you for honoring my friend Warren. Mark, thank you for the work you have done with the 24-hour place. I think since 2015 at this point, thank you to Tina Fallon for being the... uh, creator of this original idea that lives for so long and just brings community wherever you go. So I wish you both a great day, Um, union strong, and I will see you both on the picket line or in life, whichever comes first. All right. That would be great. Thank you so much, Alana. It's an honor. So welcome. Have a great day to you both. Hey, I have some news. Little Known Facts is now available to watch on YouTube. Hours and hours and hours of interviews that you can see my fabulous guests. And guess what it's called? Little Known Facts with Alana Levine. Catchy, right? Anyway, head on over to YouTube and watch the podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe. Also, if you want to donate to the podcast, zero pressure. But if you want to... No donation is too big or too small. I am so grateful for you for listening. But if you want to donate, just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com forward slash donations. Lastly, Little Known Facts is recorded in Brooklyn, New York, USA. My editor is Nicholas Clark. None of this happens without Nicholas. And the Little Known Facts theme song was composed and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you for listening and have an amazing day.